market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, unlike the RBA, is not on hold until 2024. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, the doctor, Dr. Anirban Mahanti. How are you, buddy? I'm very good, and I have a new mic, so... You have we'll a new see. mic? Let's see how it goes. <laughs> Let's see how it goes. We, we, we did get some really positive feedback, but some, some constructive feedback from Fools, suggesting that maybe we need to improve the audio. Uh, as we've said many times, we're doing this remotely. Dr. His place, I'm at mine. Uh, and the, the novelties of stitching together this sort of stuff uh, can be challenging. So we have... Uh, heard your feedback. We are trying to improve the audio as we go. Um, it's, it's a far cry, mate, from the old days when we used to record at Triple M Studios in the city. Uh, first we went back to home and then we went to our own home. So uh, we're doing our best. Thank you for those who gave us that feedback. And as always, um, for, and all sorts of things, including audio, if you've got any feedback, do, do let us know. Mate, um, lots to cover this week. Some macro stuff, as always, we'll start with. I'm calling this week New Economy Week. And we'll get to that. Um, we have a big CEO who's stepping aside, and I want to get your thoughts on that because I think we can have a really interesting conversation about the value of management on that one. Uh, the investment bank two-step, uh, the old put it, take it apart, put it together, take it apart, put it together, and get fees along the way. We'll go into the latest version of that one. I might have a little bit of a rant, and made it. We can't avoid the GameStop story, so we'll, we'll try. We'll try and do that in a little bit of detail. Uh, frankly, as always, we're recording this on a Thursday, and. Uh, Anything could happen between now and when this goes to air, but we'll do our best to try and work out what's going on. I might have, it's overdue, mate. I'm going to jump on the high horse and we will dip into the full mailbag. So we've got a full one. Let's get on with it. What do you reckon? Let's get on with it. <laughs> Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. So look, we talk about the macro regularly. Generally, I'm, I give a view. You say it doesn't matter and we move forward. So we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Speaking of two steps, we'll do that dance again. Um, this time though, look, I know you have a view on the RBA and I know you won't pass up a chance to rant about the RBA. So I'll, I'll give you that opportunity, mate. I will lay out the red carpet and invite you to, to, uh, to have your say. Interesting this week. So the RBA came out. Was just, what I thought was interesting was not the decision. We know or we knew rates were almost certainly going to stay on hold. They did stay on hold. 0.1%. We know that. The RBA didn't even really change its rhetoric around when rates are likely to rise. But there was some interesting stuff in there. So let me go through it. And then you can uh, you can jump in. The first thing was, of course, the rates decision. That's easy and that's done. Secondly, they're going to buy another $100 billion. That's with a B of Australian government bonds over the next 20 weeks. Uh, they, well, they, said it, they said it five billion a week, so I can do the maths. You can do the maths. We're pretty clever like that. Uh, Twenty weeks worth of bond buying to keep rates low. So that's their that's their aim for medium term rates. So we should say really quickly and without going into too much jargon. But for those who are wondering, the RBA sets the overnight cash rate. That's the zero point one percent. That's the official cash rate. But banks and and other uh, parts of the investment market then make their own decisions on longer term interest rates. So the bonds, so government loans, uh, three years, five years, I think we have 10 in Australia, they have 30 in the US. Generally speaking, the government excuse me, make their own decisions on how much that should be priced at. And the RBA actively getting into the market is trying to put influence on those medium term rates to make sure that not only is the official cash rate low now for variable, but for those looking out three years to, to borrow on a fixed basis, they can also get really cheap rates. So that's what the RBA is doing. $100 billion being spent on that. And then a couple of forecasts. And this I thought was interesting, mate. So the first was they think unemployment, which is currently 6%, the middle of their expectation range is going to be at 6 by the end of this calendar year and 55 by the end of 2022. So that's welcome news. They said their expectations for GDP growth, and again, let's define our terms for new listeners. GDP is gross domestic product. It's effectively the sum total of everything the country produces. That's going to be 3.5% growth this year and next year, which is pretty good and well above most recent history. Uh, and they also said, this is, the, this is the big one, they are not going to move rates until inflation gets sustainably between 2 and 3%. Now, that's not news, but their forecast effectively is that that won't happen until 2024, maybe even 2025, until inflation, um, the pressures that add to it, wage inflation in particular, they don't see that coming to bear until probably 2024, 2025. Now, of course, if you're borrowing, that's good news because rates will stay low for another three years, but it does also give us a glimpse into their expectations of the economy. So, mate, lots there. Uh, interest rates, bond buying, unemployment, GDP, inflation. What grabbed you from those numbers, if anything? What, what, what'd you kind of, how did you feel? What did you think coming out of reading that statement? Well, I think I should get the RBA governor's job. That was what came out. <laughs> that's, that's not new. Come on, you've been campaigning for that for ages. 
Well, like, I mean, you know, I'll do the job for one quarter of the salary. Um, <laughs> if we get the Motley Fool Money podcast army onto this one, I reckon, yeah. look, like, like, like GameStop and like Reddit, if we can get our community, instead of, instead of uh, going long GameStop, maybe we can, we can, we can maybe can get everyone to, uh, to campaign for Doc as Reserve Bank Governor. What do you reckon? That's a decent chance, well, right? I, I think, you know, now, as I said, I'm doing it for a quarter of the pay. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the Australian taxpayer is, you, uh, you know, you and I and everybody else who's listening to this uh, is already, you know, 75% better off. And, and the job is really that. simple. Just don't move the rates. Keep it at zero. <laughs> Come back in 2024. This is the easiest job on the planet. Like, I mean, there's that nothing here like to do. So, uh, yeah, that was my high-level take on this. Um, well, so I, I think, you know, if I have a kid, you know, putting my... Uh, actually, I don't say that jokingly. It's, it sounds like the easiest job on the planet actually to do. Um, keep the roads, uh, rates at that level. Uh, I think there may be a bit of chasing the wrong thing. Mm. And there might be a bit of trying to expect this expectation that the inflation is going to be two to three percent probably never comes to bear maybe inflation Mm -hmm. is actually never going to be more than two (laughs) percent and therefore what the rates stay low Maybe, maybe it does, right? Maybe it doesn't, yeah. I don't know. Um, maybe it can, right? I mean, I guess if you, if you take that view, I mean, if, if rates are the response to inflation, at least in large part, maybe as you say, rates only need to go up if inflation starts to get too high and if it never does and rates never need to go up, maybe, I mean, you know, the, the reserve banks around the world have been fighting inflation for, well, since 1970 really and then hard since 1983. Paul Volcker famously, you know, rammed rates up. We've done it here as well. I mean, if inflation is, is, is permanently or at least semi-permanently dead, Maybe we don't even need higher rates. Maybe that's maybe that that is the the reality, right? I mean, for the most of human history, we didn't have central banks or interest rates that, that you know needed to be set. Maybe maybe that is the new the new news. Yeah, so that, that's you know so allowing for that possibility. Maybe that's the new you know there's you, know, you could call it technology driven deflation. Mm. Um, you could um, I I think it is consistent with the fact that if you have an unemployment level, so if if the projected unemployment level is say five and a half percent. Hmm. That's still meaningfully higher than what I would expect. Like, you know, yeah. um, an, an OECD economy could potentially have like a 3% unemployment rate, right? So it's meaningfully higher than that. So there's some logic there as to, you know, well, you know, why would we increase rates? Why would it make boring harder if we yeah. if we are targeting a 3% unemployment rate when we are unemployment rate is sitting at 6% or 6.5%, right? Uh, I think there too, though, I, th- I think it's a bit of a, I, I think the problem here is, to, in my mind, is not rates, right? Mm. I mean, I, I think what's the byproduct of this rate is going to be two things. The byproduct of this rate, low rate, is basically asset price inflation. But I think, in particular, mm. it's going to be asset price inflation of the housing market. Right. I think that alone cannot drive unemployment down. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think the other thing is that again, it depends on how you're calculating all these things, but. Mm. I think what I call participation in new age economy, if that is, uh, first of all, you have to count how that participates. Uh, do you count somebody working for Uber, uh, Deliveroo or any other things <laughs> as employed, right? I mean, what yeah. is the definition of employed and is that being actually accurately captured? I don't know if that is the mm. case. Number two is that, you know, there are, there are so many people who are uh, basically working in, in contract or contracting mode, right? Yep. Are they counted as employed? Are they counted as unemployed? How many hours do they work? There's a lot of variables, I think. So yeah. I, I think the question really in my mind is, how, are we participating in sort of, are we appropriately counting 21st century uh, jobs? Are we also facilitating creation of 21st century jobs? My only comment would be that I think asset price inflation, the way uh, um, you know the Reserve Bank governor is actually doing is going about doing he's going to actually create asset price inflation which i think is going to cause disenfranchisement of people i, I think that is the the by no other country which has a, z- a zero interest rate has expensive housing i think that yeah, right. is you know no other country actually that i can think of that has uh, uk must you know, be close-ish i think in terms of i, I think if it, i mean u.s housing prices are much much lower Best I can think of, I don't claim to know a lot about international housing prices. I think the UK is still pretty expensive. Is that, is that rising? Uh, no, I don't, nobody spends. So I think the way to think about this is nobody spends 40 to 50% of mortgages on average or 40% of their mortgages. Um, on. Uh, I, I think the closest would be some Norwegian countries probably. 
uh, very high tax regime places and where uh, there are places in the Norwegian countries where people actually do not really own. It's almost like um, China where you actually you you don't own houses, you lease houses effectively because you're never paying them off. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is then which is in my mind then a definition of lease. So I I, I think again a lot of variables that model is possible but I think the the, the byproduct is um, asset price inflation, which I think has a couple of other things. So I don't like this policy at all for a couple of reasons, because it's going to drive up the price of that asset that shouldn't move that much, mm. which in turn has other, you know, Australia is a very desirable place. But if to live in a desirable place, you have to pay up that much mm. to enter the place and have a house, that is a huge deterrent, right? We can say whatever we want to, but I mean, ultimately, you know, people do economic calculations in life, right? So um, I, I think, yeah. So net-net, I think it's not good, but there might be some logic here. Um, and as I said, I can do the job. It's very easy. Zero rates until 2024. <laughs> I, think, I think that's actually interesting, man. I think what... I think the hard part for, for policymakers and frankly for anyone thinking about this is, to your point, as you say, there's no other country with zero rates with house prices this high, but that's almost the point, right? The fact that other house other countries have got rates at this level but have different housing means that rates alone aren't the only thing, right? There is something very Australian culturally about the fact that, as you say, at the same level of rates, we're simply prepared to or want to or are forced to, depending on which way you want to look at it, put more money into housing. It's, it's, it's partly a rates impact. And yes, the RBA can absolutely change that reality by changing the rate. But that, you know maybe that points to the fact that there is other a potential policy slash regulatory slash whatever kind of and even maybe just cultural I don't know how you do that but you know maybe, maybe it's I mean rates are as I said that a key lever they can use but maybe that's the thing maybe it's actually not the rates problem maybe it's the either, either the, the amount the banks are lending or the fact we're all stupid enough to pay so much or there's probably something else at play as well as the fact that rates are, are pretty cheap and assets are going through the roof yeah I actually like you know I, I didn't want to get into that but since you've gotten into that <laughs> I'll, I'll add my two bobs to it so I, think I know, sorry I, I, didn't, uh, yeah. I didn't mean to bait you on it I just, I just literally uh, no, thought no. As, you, as you were saying my, my thought was yeah. hey actually hang on if, if it's not just rates then there's something else at play there right yeah, so I think there might be a bit, it, it is all, you know, it, it's dependent on how you think about economy, right? So if you think of an economy mm. as driven largely by SMB, then you're thinking of what the SMB small does, Small and businesses. Right? Yeah, yeah small and businesses. You think of what the SMB does, right? The SMB basically, you know, has a house of their own and they maybe have a cafe or maybe have a small business. Mm. So that's another, mm. you know, mortgage. So it's, it's a really mortgage-driven economy, right? Um, culturally, to, to go and, you know, um, do other things like build medium to large size companies is a different type of risk taking right if the mm -hmm. if the population believes that i need to be able to touch and feel what i am going to borrow against but i'm not yeah. going to borrow or i'm not going to risk money at something that i can't touch and feel right now uh, i think that's a barrier right and if that barrier continues for a long time then um, you basically have have a situation where that's the norm and the other thing is not the norm, right? Mm -hmm. um, in most, so the other, you know, there's a big difference, I think, in how the bond buying, for example, works, right? In in the US market, the Fed is buying bonds, but it's buying bonds of corporations. Now I know you can make an argument, oh, it's you know helping the rich and things like that. But mm -hmm. the whole reason for buying corporate bonds is to help corporations which create jobs, right? So I mean, there is another way to think about that, right? So, you know, corporations create jobs, corporations create innovation, and therefore you're funding that bond buying to encourage them to borrow, which then indirectly flows. So there is a direct flow mm -hmm. and there's an indirect flow on method. And I think here what we're doing is a, is a direct, it's not, it's not, I think it's not intended, but that's how it works out because banks are more comfortable um, lending against a real asset versus, you know, lending against yeah. an unreal, unseen, invisible, you know, <laughs> invisible asset, right? So yeah, I, yeah. I think again, I'm, I'm, again, it's hard to know, um, but super hard to tease out, right? There are so many moving parts here. There's bank lending, bank profit. I mean, I, I hear you, and at the same time, I think, well, hang on, bank profit margins aren't so big here. It's not like they're getting a lot of free kicks or taking too little risk because they took more risk. They couldn't pay us less on our savings. It, it's it's a really tangled knot, right? There's, there's housing policy, there's lending policy, there's just culture and how much we're prepared. If we all just tomorrow said, we're going to spend 25% of our income on, on housing and no more, house prices would fall with nothing else required, right? There is some element of Australians just culturally wanting to do it. There's so many different pieces of, of the puzzle. It's, it's hard to really untangle properly. Yeah, like, like the last thing I would say is that, you know, you know I think the RBA can only do... So, so I think, you know, there is a situation in which 
there's a big problem. And that big problem situation is if the rates overseas go up and if you borrow, say, 60% of the funds from overseas, yeah, then, right. then the rates here have to go up. You know, that, yeah. and, the, and the RBA can either, at that point say, well, I'm going to compensate for that by negative rates. The moment you get into that territory, I, I think right now everything is okay because our rates are not di- divorced from other rates, which basically yeah. means our currency is not divorced completely from other, ra- other things, right? All things being equal, the moment we divorce our, uh, our rates from the other rates that, that matter, um, I, I think we have a problem. And at that point, I don't know what, what happens. I, again, like, you know, I like to believe that if, if somebody is boring, they should think that the rates, the RBA rate is going to be 3%. And then I would like to qu- ask them, you know, are you going to be able to pay at the 3%? If you can't pay at the 3%, you shouldn't be borrowing today. At, you know, you shouldn't, if you're, if you're borrowing so much today that you can't pay at 3%, I, I think, you know, that's a chance that I wouldn't take. And I know others mm-hmm. might take, but I, I would just stay hundreds of foot pole, you know, many, many, uh, <laughs> a lot of distance away from that because that's a, that's just yeah. the risk I would not want to take, um, yeah, sure. right? And, uh, right, and, uh, you know, the, the other thing I'll say is that, you know, f- there are lots of examples of um, reserve bank governors who during their term do something for the next reserve gov- governor to actually unwind <laughs> and deal <laughs> with it, right? right? So, uh, we, again, that's the other thing. So, again, I, I would be, cautious about all that's going on again overall i've never been a proponent of rates going to zero um for uh, again like i mean another way to think about this is of if pre-covid our unemployment rate was five percent going to zero is probably going to help us get to that five percent but no better in other words we're not going to get to three percent or four percent or whatever that he thinks he wants you and they were not you're not going to pre-covid we had no inflation right so that what makes the reserve bank governor think yeah, that staying at zero forever or until 24 is going to give him inflation like i mean you know um common sense would say no it's not going to happen you can try as hard as you want but it's not just not going to happen so i you know uh, you want to yeah so i i, I don't know again i, I think it's a sloppy policy see overall yeah no, i like it i think uh yeah like there's so many different moving parts here i think that I, i'd actually go back further mate just for what just quickly we'll move on but um when you say pre-covid it was really i mean post gfc i my, my my really strong sense of central bankers are so i won't say the phrase i was gonna say something scared uh so bloody scared of uh of of being in charge when the next gfc thing hits rates and policy become so stupidly accommodative and again i don't think it's just an australian problem though it's 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 showing itself in house prices here in very different ways but um rates to my mind are just so incredibly low around the around the world because so so many central bankers are so scared of being the guy or girl in charge when the next gfc hits and they haven't done enough that they're, they're doing too much in fact Lowe actually said almost as much at a speech he gave to the national press club this week basically saying they'd rather do too much than not enough and i think that's that's exactly the, the mindset that I don't know. I don't, history, as you say, I mean, Alan Greenspan was a genius until history realised he wasn't. Um, I, I do wonder if this time, the history of this time gets written and that one of the headlines is that central bankers were just, you know, they're supposed to be balanced. They're not supposed to be, you know, yes, you'd rather do too much, not enough as a general rule, but that means you've got to be, you know, 49-51 rather than, rather than you know, 70-30. Uh, and it feels like they're, they're way too far down that path. Move right, on to the next on, one. Um, <laughs> Yeah, let's do that. So, on something more interesting, I'm, I'm calling this New Economy Week, mate. And look, we talked about Apple and Tesla last week, uh, two companies that you, you have a passing acquaintance with. Uh, let's go to another couple that I, you own one of them. I think I own two of the, of the three of the four we're going to talk about. Um, but to me, New Economy Week, mate, Google's results were out this week. They were astonishingly good. Amazon's results were out. Uh, our, our colleague Kevin mentioned that their sales are up 38% and they're doing a billion dollars a day in sales. Um, how, how you do a billion dollars a day and still grow at 38% is a hell of a thing. Uh, but even here at home, mate, Kogan and Temple and Webster both doubling sales. Temple and Webster's profit up fivefold. That's a bit That's a bit generous. That makes it look too good because the profit wasn't much last year. Um, but even as a group, and again, we can we can sort of drag back Apple and Tesla from last week, but it, it, it's worth just kind of highlighting, uh, I think, well, two things. I guess the first one I want to make is these businesses are doing spectacularly great things and continue to disrupt and grow. The second one, though, is I want to dispel a bit of a myth, at least in part, which is there's a sense of, oh, this is the COVID effect. And, and yes, it absolutely is, except in my mind, you may disagree, so feel free to. But in my mind, as we've said before, this was a speeding up of a, a trend already underway. So will they keep growing at this sort of rate? No, of course not. But it has changed meaningfully the way consumers and businesses interact with companies. 
and each other, quite frankly. Uh, and, you know, New Economy Week, e-commerce, online uh, ads, uh, you know, hardware, cars, like, you know, the, the, the it, well, maybe I should call it Disruptors Week. I don't, I don't really know what to call it. It doesn't really matter, obviously, what label I give it. But just thought it was, just thought it was a fascinating combination of those big four US companies and two, two little tiddlers here in Australia, but businesses are doing quite well. And for full disclosure, I own shares in Google, Amazon, and Kogan. So I'm absolutely talking my book. They're not deliberately. Um, they, just, they just stood out to me, mate, as, as meaningful just signposts. We are talking about a company that is, you know, let's annualize this. And yes, I know there is, yeah. you know, seasonality and all that. This is a company that is getting to $500 billion annually in sales. You know how much the growth is year over year? Their expected growth is between 28% and 38%. That's phenomenal. For their guidance. So you're talking about a company nearly nearing, you know, $450, $500 billion (laughs) in revenue. That's growing at, you know, between 20 and 30%. These things are unheard of, okay? Let's put this into context. Uh, I was was having a chat with with some of our colleagues yesterday about this, and this is, I, I think this is fascinating. No, a number. Nobody would have made a DCF. <laughs> nobody could have made a DCF about this. <laughs> this is almost unbelievable uh, to put into a DCF. You know, you right. And the closest I can think of, you know, if you think of Amazon retail now, um, Amazon retail, the closest you can compare this is with Walmart, right? And Walmart clears again. People would not believe this. Five hundred eighty billion dollars annually in revenue. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's net margins are somewhere around. So basically, the profit, you know, as divided by uh, the net income divided by the the revenue. So just to define mm-hmm. our terms, there, so five to six percent, right? I mean, right. retail so it is keeps pretty- five cents in every every dollar of sales it makes. Yeah. So like, I mean, you know, it's 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 a low margin business. But mm. here's the thing, right? If something is at five hundred billion dollars, and it's yes, it's not all retail, <laughs> yeah. and it's still growing at thirty percent. There is no reason, to, in my mind, to think that this company actually is one day not going to clear a trillion dollars or more in revenue, right? I would, I would say that's almost odds on at this point. Yeah, like clearing a trillion dollars is like you know almost yeah. like a no-brainer. So, yeah. so that I, it's, it's we haven't seen companies of this scale, mm. I think, in history. It's like that's right. Know, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. There, there have been no businesses that are that globally dominant. I mean, the closest we can come to is. Like at a, at a commercial level, maybe General Electric, just because I had a finger in lots of pies, or maybe the multinational car companies in the old days. You know, if you think about multinational brands, I think Coke. I'm thinking Ford, uh, maybe some washing machine company or something. But it didn't, you know, they were nowhere near that dominant. Um, Not that dominant. That much yes. consumer involvement, exactly. Right now, here's the other interesting thing we were talking about. With you know, and again, this is maybe I'm just you know completely deviating from the question you've asked me. No, no go just, for it, mate. <laughs> so I, 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 did, gonna, I gave you carte blanche. I said, "What do you reckon?" So you get to say whatever uh, so, you want. So yeah? this is, you know, so here's the other second interesting point, right? Now we think of these businesses as, or we think of Amazon as as huge, globally dominating. You know, and you know, I'm sure Australian politicians are looking to make some laws to try to <laughs> crawl back some of that money. <laughs> here's what I'll tell them. This is not as globally dominating as you think it is, <laughs> right? Why? Because the dominating company in e-commerce in uh, Latin America mm-hmm. is not Amazon. Yep. It's Mercado Libre. Mm-hmm. In, in Asia, um, again, it is not Amazon. There are other companies that dominate the, uh, the yes, it's, it's present, it's there. But, you know, in India, for example, it's Flip, uh, Flipkart, right, is the dominant company, which is now owned by, uh, by Walmart. Yes, Amazon is there, but it's not the dominating company as people think about. So I, I think the other thing to realize is this pie uh, of, you know, retail sales in a connected world is humongous, is humongous, right? And I, I think a largely a large number amount of this figure uh, uh, for for a huge amount of sale, as as uh, as our colleague Kevin Gandia would say, is because the American consumer market is basically like <laughs> like ten times of any other consumer market you can think of. So <laughs> a large amount of sale is basically just totally. that. It's it's the dominance totally. in the American consumer market. So they dominate the American consumer market, not other markets. Um, mm. So again, fabulous results. The couple of things uh, odd things uh, there. There was a big slowdown in AWS sales. Mm-hmm. So um, again, it's yes, you know, I'm, 
a, a business clearing 50, 60 billion dollars in a quarter or something like that, <laughs> or, or, or 30 billion dollars or something like that. Uh, I forgot what the exact number is. Um, and it is growing um, at only 28% or something like that. So actually- Now let me just quickly, know, let me just quickly stop you just for listeners. AWS is Amazon Web Services. That's Amazon's yes. cloud computing division. I know I know it's more detailed than that, but for, for my purposes, it's all I can yes. deal with and most of, our, most of our listeners. So Amazon has a massive retail business and a burgeoning and very profitable cloud computing business. So it was actually born because Amazon had spare server capacity, which I love as an idea, right? Bezos has gone, hey, we can rent this out. All of a sudden, I don't know how many years later, probably 15 years later, it's now probably the, the jewel in the Amazon crown, believe it or not, even though most of us think of Amazon as the online retailer, uh, many investors are thinking about it as, as Amazon web services. So you're saying that the sales growth there, while, while still really impressive, has slowed down a bit since the last couple of years. Man, the, you know, another, this is an example of, you know, how, you know, if you invest in the best and you invested, you know, it doesn't really matter. And you didn't have to invest when they IPO'd, right? I mean, you could have invested 10 years post IPO and you'd have still done fabulously well. Um, again, you and I are both shareholders at this point still. Um, yes, yes. So, again, fabulous. Again, Google's results were fabulous. So, yeah, great. I want to stop you for a second because I want to, I want to go back to something you said earlier because I I, there was two things I wanted to mention that just to contextualize a couple of things you said and, and reinforce them, basically amplify what you said. The first is, as you say, Walmart, uh, Amazon growing phenomenally, still behind Walmart in sales. And you think about that, you know, for all of the dominance we think of as Amazon, as you rightly point out, it's not the world. It's it's kind of maybe the Western world, at least as we, as we think about it. Um, but even then, that's, that's not, you know, a lock. They may well change at some point. But that's, you know, even then, even then their sales are still less than Walmart sales. Uh, and if you think about the kind of the dominance of Walmart, and frankly, the way we used to talk about Walmart as a business, um, Amazon likely has a, a decent way to go. You mentioned DCF, mate. I just wanna, I wanna unpack that for our listeners because no one, no, <laughs> it's, uh, algebra on, on podcasts isn't great, so I'm not gonna try and explain what it is or go through it in detail. But effectively, mate, what, what you're alluding to is most analysts, when they create a spreadsheet to value a company, will put in a company's profits and they'll put in a growth rate over X number of future years. And generally what we do is we say, okay, well, last year we grew at 10%, so this year maybe it's gonna be nine, and then kind of conservatism and, and not wanting to be over optimistic or over kind of, you know, um, look silly, we say, okay, well, let's assume the next year might be slowing a little bit, so that's eight, next year maybe it's five, and then maybe in five years time, it's growing at the rate of the economy. And that's kind of what we're taught to do, right? That's the, that's the logical way to do it. And frankly, that hasn't been the stupidest thing to do in the past, because industrial companies don't tend to have blowout high growth results for millions of reasons, including the, the amount of money they need to generate that growth, build new factories and all that kind of stuff. Plus, they didn't have that global dominance, as you mentioned. But if you'd have said to somebody, hey, I'm going to build a spreadsheet, 997 Amazon lists. I'm going to build a spreadsheet for Amazon. I'm going to go out 24 years, which never happens anyway. And when I do, in year 28, I'm going to put growth, or year 24, sorry, I'm going to put growth of 38%. What do you reckon, guys? I, I, I mean, it, I, I, I don't know how, how long you would last in any company. If you put a spreadsheet together and say, hey, this is what I think Amazon's going to do in 2021, you know, 24 years hence, I think it's going to go up 38%. I, no one would ever have thought about it, would never have even, I don't even think the, the most optimistic growth investor would have put in, even if we'd asked them. But even if you're not the most optimistic growth investor, you're probably, by now you're saying, okay, well, Amazon probably grows fast for the first 10 years. And maybe, maybe in 15 years, it's still growing okay. But gee, at year 16 and 17, maybe growth's like five or 6%. Because, um, you know, I can't keep growing this far forever. The, the, the sheer dollar value of growth added in that 24th year at 38%. We know it's massive because you've talked about the, the billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue. Um, but it just, it just underscores the, the, the stupidly unusual uh, and, and profitable and, and fantastic growth that Amazon's been able to deliver. Just, you know, no one could have put that, no one would have put that in a spreadsheet. And yet that's exactly what Amazon's done in 2021. Yeah, like the other thing I would like to talk about is, and just, just, I'll make it brief, is over what? time, I think one of the things that we don't realize is, you know, the industrial age was not as connected as the internet age is. Mm -hmm. And I think the overall pie has just become bigger, right? I mean, you know, there are more people in middle class, there are more people with higher quality of life, there are more people with the ability to spend more, there are more things that we, you know, there are more things we have invented <laughs> which has created new other yeah. things, right? Yeah. And and therefore the assumptions that we had that worked for, okay, you know, if you're Airbus or Boeing or GE, this is how you would model it, do not apply anymore. Uh, you can't apply the same sort of approach to uh, you know, modern corporations, which are effectively you know multinationals, global with global opportunities, right? right? And, and and as I said, dominance is one thing, but you don't even need yes, like okay, Google is dominant in what it does, but Amazon, you could argue, is actually not dominant <laughs> in many areas, and it still is a phenomenal business, right? So again, <laughs> um, 
Uh, or as we talked about Apple, right? I mean, you know, you could say Apple is dominant, but Apple is not mm. dominant as you, you know, in, in the in the in the sheer mm. definition of you know owning significant portion of the market. I mean, you know, if your market share globally is only twelve percent, then you're not dominant, yeah. right? So I, I think that it's just the sheer volume of opportunity is huge, mm. and and you know, companies with I think global scale and global opportunity have like. I think much bigger runways today than they used to have maybe you know twenty years ago. So I think that that's, I, I think that that sticks out. Of course, you can't be always optimistic about things, so you have to be careful. <laughs> and not every company is Amazon, as I like to say. Mm. Mate, let me um, let, let me just turn back locally to the extent you, you're interested. Uh, I mentioned Kogel and Temp- Kogan and Templar Webster. I almost combined this in Kogel, Kogan and Templar Webster. Uh, they both delivered 100% plus sales growth numbers. Um, profit was up massively on both. Again, I think we probably need to discount that a little bit, although. Not, not to ignore it, but you know, if you're growing from one million to five million in profit, yeah, it's a five hundred percent growth. But you've got to be a little bit careful that we don't over-egg the over-egg the salad here. Um, the, uh, the the sales results though, still really really good. Um, Nick Scully's sales profits, by the way, are out up ninety percent today. So there's there's something about the online offline, something about COVID, something about a whole lot of stuff. Your thoughts on the local uh, would be kind of I won't I won't say the direct copycats, but but Kogan in the past, Rosalind Kogan himself, when we interviewed him wasn't even slightly perturbed by the comparison of Amazon and, you know, saying, hey, it looks like you're doing some of the things they're doing. Um, he, he was quite quite chuffed by the comparison. They, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're copying or at least replicating. Um, uh, you know, uh, they say that, uh, what is it, copying is the sincerest form of flattery. What do you make of those two businesses? They're obviously Australia only. Are they are they doing well? Is it, is it all COVID? Is there much in their future? How do, you, how do you think about those two in the context of the global giants? Yeah, so I think, again, I wouldn't compare them with Global Giants. And as I just have alluded to uh, in, when I talked about Amazon, I said that, you know, it is, it doesn't, I think it's it's a fall- fallacy to think that everything is going to be killed by Amazon or Google or <laughs> yeah. uh, whoever yeah. else. Like, I mean, you can always find a find an angle, a niche, uh, you know, yeah. smart people like, you know, Russell and Kogan um, and, 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 and David, you know, they've been able to find a niche and opportunity to sort of, you know, and they started different ways, right? They, they made a brand for themselves, uh, you know, they sell their own branded stuff they you know they you know they imported stuff from outside to inside uh so all sorts of things right now they have white labeled uh, products that they're selling which is sort of you know increasing so again i think it is a, i wouldn't say even that they're copying right i mean i think they found a model that works well for them yeah, in yeah. in their um sort of in their regional f- focus uh, the only thing is that you know one needs to be careful you you can't i think apply sort of the same sort of logic that you can apply to a global business and a local business always is ultimately limited by local opportunities right it doesn't just have the force multiplier that you get from a global opportunity right um that said i think these two businesses are just doing just fine right i mean this is a, these are exactly they're proof of the type of uh you know, new age economy we are in, and yeah, I think we need more of these. You know, Temple and Webster's and and Kogan's to um, you know to serve to drive the economy forward, right? And they, again, again, I think they're increasing the price. Mm-hmm. You know, again, COVID has helped all of these companies. And do I expect hundred percent growth next year? I don't. <laughs> but I, I, but but you know, I wouldn't. Uh, you know, even if it's like twenty percent, even if it's thirty percent, I think it's it's meaningfully uh, good. And yeah, COVID has been a shot in the arm for them, which is, you know, again, they were at, they were at the right place at the right time in, you know, in the right, being in the right sort of in, in the context of the business, not the right time otherwise. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's all fine. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, um, speaking of Amazon, let's go to, to a big bit of news during the week. We'll spend a little bit of time on this, not, not forever, but a little bit of time. Uh, Amazon CEO and, and founder Jeff Bezos has stepped halfway back away from the company. He's going to move from the role of CEO to the role of executive chair. Now, executive means he's still going to be involved in the business. Most chair are non-executive chair, or chair, chairmen, chairwomen, chairpersons. Um, so it's all that when... Um, when that happens, that makes that makes some degree of sense that we want him to be able to step back to be executive chair um, and still be involved in the business. But it also seems to me a little bit like a half step out of the business and maybe uh, at some point in two, three, five years hence, he says, okay, now I've done that. The CEO's taken over. Everything's going okay. I can now leave the business in capable hands. I'm off to do other things. Maybe that's maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's right. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm just bitter as a shareholder that he's going somewhere else because <laughs> if I had my choice, I'd have him hang around for another 25 years. Um 
the excuse me the, the it raises questions about the importance of management and there is no single answer to this because you know businesses are very 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 different and the type of business the age of a business the maturity of a business all matter when it comes to the importance of a particular CEO whether that's the founder or an entrepreneurial CEO or a, a great professional manager or as Warren Buffett's famous said a ham sandwich uh, you see you know buy a buy business a ham sandwich could run because someone someday someone's going to in other words you know if, if it can run by itself you're less exposed to that manager but there are different you know that's his style there are different times when different types of managers are required if business left Amazon two years in I would say it's worth a one one hundredth of the current value. If Steve Jobs had left pre-iPhone or iPod, there is no iPhone or iPod. Um, and yet, if the Woolies CEO leaves tomorrow and, and Brad Banducci is a good guy doing the right thing, they'll find someone else to come in and I doubt the business misses a beat. So just your thoughts on, on firstly Bezos himself stepping aside and what you how you feel about Amazon as a result. And then your thoughts, if you would, on just the, the importance of management, when it matters, where it matters, how much it matters, how you think about managers when it comes to your investments. Yeah, so I'm not, Concerned. Um, I, I think uh, Andy Jassy, who's taking over, um, is a phenomenal candidate for the CEO role. Uh, he's done a phenomenal job. He's he's been pretty much uh, in in the company for almost similar amounts of time, a long time. Mm. In uh, mm. as you know, I think almost similar amount of time. He was one of the early employees, I believe, and you know, done a phenomenal job with uh, the Amazon Web Services. It doesn't concern me for all the reasons you stated, right? I mean. Company is now mature. Uh, it's a mature but still fast-growing company. There are lots of innovation things, innovative things they're doing. They have, you know, their hands in different pies. Um, you know, Bezos wants to focus on other things, whether it's Washington Post or Blue Origin and other things. I mean, you know, mm. he's been doing it for a while, right? And he's not even sixteen. Probably wants to have uh, have a go at other things, <laughs> and uh, well, you know, maybe sell more more of his shares and. Uh, and that's also okay, I think. It doesn't concern me. It doesn't concern me because, largely, as I said, a good manager over time mm. builds a beautiful bench bench strength. Um, mm. Again, I I don't I follow I own shares in Amazon, but I don't follow it as closely because it's a business that uh, I like and I, I think it's doing great. But it's not it in my from a business studying point of view, it's not. It doesn't have many of those classic things that I like, so I don't follow it that right. closely. But I follow, for example, Apple right. very closely because you know it has many things that I really like and enjoy. Um, you know, from a business point of view, from a qualitative point of view, not quantitative point of view, right? And as I famously say, pretty much every SVP, uh, so senior vice president in Apple's, who's in in the direct leadership team, they could be CEOs right. of a Fortune 500 company. Right. Um, you know, and Apple's, for example, uh, hardware leader was being, you know, Intel was trying to poach him. Could have been CEO of Intel, didn't go, <laughs> right? right, right. Uh, why? Because again, you know, uh, different people look for different things. And um, if your company is giving you what you want, maybe you're going to stick around. Um, and that's about, you know, that's the beauty of building bench strength, right? So, so I, I think... Jeff Bezos, you know, as as a leader, has probably done that. He's you know he's got a bench strength there. That um, and again, you want a, any great company is not built by one individual. You need multiple individuals to contribute to build a great company, and you want want those people to be leading significant ventures. And at the same time, you want those people to be ready to take over. So I think this is, I think, you know, again, this is all natural evolution. So it doesn't. Doesn't worry me. Yes, there are many, many. Uh, I think the thing is that there are instances where this has not worked out, right? So, if the famous example is um, Howard Schultz with Starbucks, right? You right. know, the Starbucks was in its peak of its life, and then he left uh, to become sort of executive chairman, I believe, or whatever chairman, and, and things didn't yeah. work out. Yeah, and I that business it would have been reasonable to assume at that point was the sort of way you've described Amazon and Apple, right? It, it should have been. It had, what, 20-odd years of Schultz running it. It knew what it was doing. It was doing it well. There was no reason to believe Schultz was, was risking the company by standing aside. Not that he necessarily risked the company, but the company went into a bit of a funk pretty quickly and Schultz felt he had to come back. Um, I mean, it's entirely possible that Amazon and or Apple in different circumstances become Starbucks or don't. Um, it, it, how, do you, how do you see those two different... Is, was it just literally luck of the draw? Was it just circumstance or people? Um, or was it something fundamentally different, do you reckon? Well, like, I mean, here's the thing, right? At some point, the founder's going to leave, right? Or the yeah, founder... That's, that's so, so, oh, one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, one way or the other, the founder's going to leave at some point. I'm not so beholden... Uh, like to the to the I think the founder's job, if the founder's done a good job, is exactly what I said: is to build a bench strength of wonderful individuals. And I think if you really love a company, you can learn that 
um, that company has phenomenal bench strength. Right? So I have I have no problems. I can name five people, for example, who can become Apple CEO tomorrow, and the company will be just fine. Like these are people who 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 are CEO worthy. You know, in many ways, they might be more worthy than Tim Cook. But you know, well, nobody, everybody doesn't want to be CEO of Apple as well, right? I mean, that's the other thing. Not everyone probably wants to be CEO of like Amazon, right? So that's the other thing. It is a huge weight, right? It's a huge <laughs> exactly, weight because exactly. it's a huge weight yeah. for an individual. Because again, you know, individuals are funny things, right? You have to now in some sense, compete with Jeff Bezos and his legacy mm -hmm. while keeping his legacy, while trying to build your own legacy. This is a very difficult problem. Uh, you know, it's more of a human challenge than, uh, than you know, your capability challenge, your capability as a, as a human being to put different things aside and to, th and to think um, with emotions aside, right? I mean, you have to build yourself up to actually lead a company of that form. So I think the biggest challenge is basically the fact that, you know, you had a previous, uh, you know, founder CEO, Bezos, with, you know, larger than life image, with the image of such, you know, success and, and things like that. So, again, anything can happen and, you know, maybe it's worth watching closely how Amazon is executing, uh, what's going on with Amazon and things like that. But, you know, at this point, it doesn't concern me. I think, you know, and as I said, Andy Jassy is if it, so again, you make, I make these calls based on individuals and individuals that take that position. I don't know the How Howard Schultz story well enough to actually comment on that CEO transition. Uh, but this one doesn't, doesn't worry me. Uh, Tim Cook never worried me um, as a choice, um, you know, and again, you know, there are different people that would, you know, so if you, if you, yeah, you have to, I guess, decide on an individual basis. That's not a perfect answer, but not a, not a great answer, but that's what it is. I would say too, Matt, actually, I wouldn't just say founders' jobs is a great bench. I'd say every CEO's job, fundamentally for directors doing their jobs, is to exactly do the same, right? Every CEO should be ready to make themselves redundant by, by the value of the staff they're bringing through. I, I always figure when a company's got to go outside for a new CEO, other than extraordinary circumstances, it does suggest to me that that company's directors and CEO were, I won't say negligent, that feels a bit too harsh, but certainly, you know, if they if they weren't able to, didn't take the time to whatever, generate enough internal candidates to take over, as unless, unless a business is in genuine trouble and needs a new breath of fresh air for some reason or other, um, that should be how I think most CEOs, regardless whether they're founders or not, are are judged or remembered is, is by the value they left in terms of the people ready to take over their jobs uh, when, they, when they're ready to depart the company for one reason or another. Uh, it, it also begs the question though, mate, I mean, at some point, at some point the CEO, you know, is, the company's not mature enough. The CEO simply is too near, too necessary um, because they are the, the, the driving force. As I said, the Amazon in 99 or, or I don't know the Apple dates, but you know, uh, pre-iPod or even post-iPod, but pre-iPhone. If Jobs had left, I imagine Apple's future is a very, very different story um, when it comes to your investing, if you think about other companies, not just the ones that we kind of know and can talk about and already are past that point, but how do you think about CEO transition when businesses are not necessarily as mature or established as some of these guys are? Um, you know, if they're three, five, seven years into their journey, does that worry you when a CEO says they're going to leave or how do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I think yeah. So the, the less mature the company, I think, the more the risk, right? I mean, that, that is absolutely true. Um, you know, so for example... Uh, something like um, like Kogan, for example, if the founders were to right, leave, right. right? I think it's, totally. it's a significantly higher risk. It's it's just I think the, a business's ability, if a business is already not dominating at that, if a business is dominating, then it gives them the opportunity at that point to sustain setbacks. You know, to be able to live through a setback and be okay. Right. Uh, actually, famously, Microsoft is a great example. Right. It didn't have a very good CEO transition from Bill Gates. Yeah. Uh, yeah right. Exactly. Um, so, uh, so things like that can happen. But I think you know, you need, again, you need the company to be at a stage where it can actually handle and absorb and manage mm, mm. that. And and so that's really the life cycle of the business to some extent. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's the way I would I would rate founders again. But here's the thing, right? If you could have a small company, and this is you know, this is my this is more Australia specific, for example, but let's say you have a small company with a CEO, uh, founder CEO, but you want to grow that company, maybe that CEO actually doesn't have the skill sets to actually grow the business, right? And maybe at that point, mm. bringing someone in to actually take over that role um, might be important, right? Again, so there there are lots of things here that we have to consider, right? Um, maybe actually having an operator. Who has experience of growing businesses, you know, across continents, uh, of a similar type of business, maybe in 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 their in a previous life, 
that might actually mm. be a worthwhile thing. While you have the maybe the CEO, or the founder CEO, you know, a, as an executive chairman or an executive director or something like that um, in the business, right? So I think that also could make sense, right? Um, so again, I think it's very industry specific, event specific, company specific, people specific, um, which is it's hard to put down into. I like you know again. Sometimes you just have to look at things and they basically decide. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Mate, let's let's move on. Um a couple of couple of small pieces of news. One big we won't spend too long on it, but one, one bit of news I saw this week um was the uh what I call the investment bank two step, right? And it's and it's one I, I'm I'm a cynic sometimes, mate. I'm an optimist, but I'm also a cynic. Um apparently it comes to to pass that Tabcorp, uh the gaming wagering giant, is gonna be broken up either by its own choice or at the hands of private equity to separate the what they call the gaming and the wagering business. I think I've got those right. Um their names all sound the same to me. Effectively, they're, they're gambling businesses. So think about the you know the online um, you know sports and racing betting and that kind of stuff from their lotteries business, because apparently those businesses are worth more t- separately than apart. Which you can kind of understand, maybe even accept. Except if you go back a few years, Tabcorp was created in its current form when it merged with Tattersalls to combine a lotteries and a gambling business into one business, and therefore create some value. Now I'm I'm a simple man, Doc, but. Surely one of those two things must be wrong. Is it, is it possible to actually combine and create value and then split apart and create even more value? And if so, how do I get some of that magic genie dust? Because I'd like to do that. Um, uh, you should become an investment banker. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. That's where the magic genie dust goes. It goes that, to the investment banker's bank account. I think that's that's what you do. I mean, this is classic. Oh, well, look, you know, I haven't followed that story closely to actually. So, so whatever I'm saying, I'm saying it in a, um, a tongue-in-cheek. I, I don't mean anything. I actually have no view on this one. Um, haven't looked at it that, that closely. I'm not a big fan of splitting things and joining them back later on or spinning, spinning and joining, spinning and joining I'm actually not even a fan of spinning out things like really like yeah. do you really need to spin out things uh, re- I mean, I mean there, is, there has to be really strong business rationale for spinning things out but yeah, yeah that's what mm-hmm. it is so yeah I just I said, like I, I you know I could even I could even buy one or the other when the same company's done both in relatively quick succession, I'm I'm calling Balderdash on that one I, there's maybe as you say maybe it's just about the investment bankers or something but I, I, I'm, like, I'm kind of with you I think I, I I can consider the business the reason for splitting some things out sometimes when it makes more sense for the business itself. If you can, I mean, we, you know, famously the the US telecom giant AT and T was split up into a half a dozen different businesses that went on to create stupid amounts of value. Now maybe that was just luck because the internet came along and internet, you know, and, and mobile telecommunications came along and maybe they got lucky. Um, the same was true of the oil businesses that were split out of Standard Oil back in the day. So. I, I'm not convinced, you know, a bit of focus, a bit of effort, a bit of competition. Maybe it, maybe it wakes up a slumbering giant to some degree. So maybe there's some value there. Um, but as you say, yeah, the, the, the investment banker kind of two-step of let's put it together now, let's take it apart. Let's put it together, let's take it apart. I would, how about we put a $5 bet down with no one in particular, mate, that at some point in the next decade, someone merges Tabcorp with something else. What do you reckon? Is there a decent chance of that? <laughs> Probably. Uh, I would say there's a very high chance of that happening. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Let's, uh, let's, let's move on from that quickly. Uh, GameStop. We've, we've talked about this. I'm, I'm not even sure how much to do on GameStop anymore because we've talked about it a couple of times. The saga continues. Worth saying the shares, as, as of the time of recording, are now one-fifth of their pan, uh, panic mania, whatever, high. Um, so they've fallen by 80% since then. There's something in that. Now, of course, they're still higher than they were before the whole thing started. So depends on where you want to start your numbers. And you've said before many times, you know, the results of any any analysis depend on you're choosing the start and end dates well. Um, you can show GameStop as a massive winner or a massive loser. That being said, maybe it's a bit of both. It's, um, I don't, I don't, I, you know, it seems like it's over-ish. Uh, the silver short squeeze that was attempted also seems to have gone away. Is this the new normal, mate? Do, do we wait for the next one of these? Has Short have learned a lesson? What should our listeners think about it? Just your your general thoughts, maybe hopefully for the last time on GameStop because we've done it enough. I've written about it three times in the last two weeks. Um, I'm kind of over it as well. Your thoughts on, on where we are with GameStop and maybe what we can take away from it? Yeah. So the thing I want to stress, though, that this is not... It is not as rare as it seems. And I think there's, you know, like everything, 
these days there is a amplification because we have social media um, mm. and we have amplification because we have faster dissemination of everything you know we live in an, yeah. you know if you go back to the 70s there was no internet things didn't fa- travel <laughs> as fast right yeah. even if you go back to 2008 you know half the world didn't have internet at that time so things didn't really uh, travel this fast now things travel fast and then hundreds of people can tweet about it then those tweets get retweeted Everybody and anybody can write about it. Everybody has an opinion about it. So I think that's really yeah. the the story. I think there's an amplification, and this is not just true for the stock market, right? This is just true for everything. Like anything. I mean, kind of the, other, the other side of the retail business we were just talking about, the or not even retail, but the the globalization we just talked about with the Amazons and Googles and Teslas and Apple and Apples. Uh, maybe, maybe this is the the dark side of that same phenomenon, right? The the very power, the very technologies and and abilities that power some of that growth also power malignancies on the other side. Yeah, and then there's, you know, machine learning algorithms, you know, you click on one GameStop story mm-hmm. and then you basically are going to be fed with like hundreds of GameStop <laughs> stories. You see GameStop and therefore now you retweet that because, you know, well, that's what you see, right? And because you yeah, retweeted yeah. it, the you know, machine thinks, well, you love this thing, so it's going to give you AMC, which is whatever the American mm-hmm. movie chain thingy uh, right. <laughs> that had a similar story. So, I, I mean, again, the reason, chain, yeah. okay, so look, just to make this clear, there was a point in time in doing, uh, just before GFC, around uh, after that, when Volkswagen was the world's largest company, it also had a huge, uh, massive short. Like I mean, that was probably unbelievable at that point in time. Um, uh, you know, um, so again, like uh, I'm just trying to get this. Yeah, so this was around. Um, it, it, uh, yeah, I forgot what again. Somewhere around that time, it was uh, yeah huge at that point in 2008. It had a huge you know um, bump up in price because of short selling things. Like that. This is not new. Mm. Uh, this happens. Uh, GameStop was unique because the short interest, which is the total number of shares that are short, was higher than the total number of short shares available, which mm. makes it again unique. Um, yeah. It was exasperated, you know, exacerbated by the fact that the company has actually been doing a buyback. Uh, uh, which is yeah. again, you know, reduces the number of shares available or the float, uh, and yeah, all those things, right? So again, I I don't know whether this is new. Um, I think it's interesting. It was interesting to me largely because I think this was an instance where um, we had what I would, I would describe as a distributed hedge fund. So the Reddit group was a distributed hedge fund, <laughs> basically playing against another hedge yeah, fund. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and many ways that's basically the power of the internet. Right, the internet basically has distributed <laughs> and distributed everything, yeah. disrupted yeah. and distributed, and we had a distributed hedge fund basically take out a hedge fund. Um, yeah, I mean stuff like this happens. I mean it's not new, but mm. is it behind us? I don't know. I'm sure we're going to see more of these sort of things uh, happen. You know, people move on to different targets. Um, yeah, and 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 as more people understand sort of the underlying mechanics of these things. I think as more people understand the underlying mechanics of these things, the potential for these actually happening decreases because mm. the the arbitrage opportunities that arise from the imbalance in shares actually starts to dissipate away quickly, right? Um, so I think, you know, underst- those m- more people, I-, I think what this has done maybe, and this may be the good news, is that it has made a lot more people aware of the underlying plumbing. So when I say underlying plumbing is how actually shares are tra- in, in gone, how shares go short, how shares are settled, what is the underlying mechanics that results in this sort of, you know, squeeze upwards and squeeze downwards. And yeah. as more of this information gets disseminated, I think it actually reduces the chances of this sort of thing happening because, you know, as soon as the short interest starts hitting 50, 60%, <laughs> other people will start noticing, right. well, okay, yeah, that is too yeah, high, yeah. right? And that acts as yeah. a counter pressure pressure so there's some maybe good news to be taken out from this i like that mate. i like that i think um look my, my biggest takeaway like it's a fascinating story i've been asked i don't know how many times man, i must have done six media interviews on gamestop in the last two weeks because uh, it's a big story right? it, it's a meaningful story the that the numbers are clear that the, the movements in share prices the the narrative that goes with it about the kind of little guy fighting back against the man all that kind of stuff i think that's largely self-serving and frankly not usually correct um, as you say, the the, the the people making real money on this one. For every every one investor who bought a GameStop share at 150, I heard about one bloke who put 250 thousand dollars into GameStop and made some money on that one. So you know, there's it's it's fine to, to think of this as a little guy doing it. Uh, I dare say most of the money's being made by other people, other than little guy, including brokers and uh, you know <laughs> third parties and all that kind of stuff. Um, the bigger one for me is like for all of the news and noise. I think we should actually for as as investors just. <laughs> Have a, watch the story if you, if you like a bit of reality TV 
from an investing perspective, I don't know you, mate, means absolutely nothing to me at all. Hasn't impacted the value of my shareholdings at all. I haven't made any different investing decisions at all. Um, it's just a matter of kind of just getting on with life, right? Just remembering that it, it's a sideshow. It's interesting over there if you want to have a look just for the fun of it, but don't let it distract you from the business of actually proper investing. Fair to say? Yes. Mate, Tom, I'm going to have a quick rant. It's been a long time since I've been on the high horse, but here I go, mate. I'm, uh, I'm going to saddle back up again. The poor old nag, the high horse, has been absolutely thrashed within an inch of its life, but that's not going to stop me. I'm back on the high horse. It's been a while. It's had a spell, so it's about time. Uh, mate, I, very quickly, and we've talked about this before in passing, but I noticed on TV last night, one bank that shall remain nameless, but might, might, might uh, rhyme with NAB, uh, had an ad on last night offering $2,000 cash back for new home loans. And I've got to say, that is probably one of the most cynical ways you can try and get a home loan customer, I reckon I've seen. And there's plenty of them. NAB did it, ANZ have done it before. Other banks, I'm sure, have all done it and probably will do it again. So this is not to bag them. Oh, excuse to bag them. I don't care if they're listening or not, though. This is about our listeners. Here's the thing. If you were trying to sell someone a higher interest loan than was available elsewhere, how would you do it? You know how I'd do it? I'd say, buy my loan. Don't worry about the interest rate. I'll give you $2,000 cash back. And in fact, that's what the loan did. The ad had nothing, to, didn't mention the interest rate. Why not? Because, well, let's just give some cash back over here. Um, one of the um, other people in our space, Effie Zahos, has done a great job. She works for CanStar these days um, on actually comparing the absolute data behind this stuff. And surprise, surprise, you are worse off if you're taking a cash back loan because the interest you end up paying is much higher because the rate is higher because they're trying to get you not to focus on the rate and instead get, take their loan at a higher rate by getting a little bit of cash back now. And that's the problem, mate. Who doesn't like cash, right? If you offer me $2,000 to do something right now, I'm far more likely to do it than if you say, I'm not going to offer you any cash at all. Would you like the same deal? Um, I'm going to I'm gonna, you know, be a little less keen to look at the interest rate. I've got some bills to pay right now. I've got to buy a new house and buy some curtains or repair the car or do something else. If I get two grand now, well, I'm kind of inclined to do it. That's exactly what the banks are trying to get you to do and exactly why I want our listeners to avoid being caught up in that. By all means, take, if you get the best rate and cash, take it, knock yourself out. But here's a tip. They're not going to give you the best rate and cash. That's exactly the point. That's my rant, mate. Any thoughts on that? No, I have nothing to add. <laughs> so again, by all means, don't, don't avoid cashback loans. Just remember that if they're focusing on the cash, they want to distract your attention from something else. So take that into, into mind. Mate, we've got time for one quick mailbag question, believe it or not which is always exciting and in fact it's what we always try and do so I've managed to bring us under time here's the question and I like this one this is a really really great one from Stephen Doc it's a very simple one it says hi Scott and Doc question for the podcast you talk about not investing money that you might need in the next three to five years and investing for retirement we do absolutely Stephen Stephen says but what about if you're investing for a major purchase say <laughs> you like this say you are investing with the goal of buying a house or a Porsche he says in brackets, or maybe I should say Tesla, yacht, personal jet. How do you go about pulling out the money to use for the purchase? Hypothetically, he says, I want to buy a house in 2025. Just in case there's another COVID-like event in 2025, should I stop investing now and dollar cost average sell, i.e. sell in small regular chunks? If so, what share should I sell first? The ones that have the lowest conviction in, the ones that have the most volatile price? I presume you wouldn't recommend trying to time a high in the market, Stephen. That's a good point, Doc. We would absolutely say invest only for three to five years plus because we want to make sure A, our investing theses have the time to play out and B, that over that period of time, most volatility at least isn't necessarily gone, but it means you're not subject to risking that volatility. But Stephen asked the right point. Okay, so let's assume we are saying he's investing for five years, but in that fifth year or fourth year in his example, he does need the money. How should he go about selling down to avoid being whipsawed at that point by where share prices might be? And if so, what should you sell? Oh, that's a, that's a very interesting question. So um, a couple of things, right? I mean, if uh, a lot of purchases are fungible in many different ways, right? So if the Porsche needs mm -hmm. to be purchased in year five, it could be deferred <laughs> to year six, seven, eight. Um, mm -hmm. That's one way to think about it, right? And you can use your current car your Mercedes <laughs> for a few few more years before you go go on, go on to get the Porsche. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, you could sell some along the way, but remember, like you know, if you're getting set, you know, fifteen percent returns per annum, then you're doubling your money every five years. So effectively, keeping the money invested and say doubling it in five years gives you 
I mean, you could basically withstand a 50% uh, drawdown or you know, movement downwards mm-hmm. and still basically be at the same point as, as you were currently, right? So, and 50% corrections, I mean, they, you know, they can happen, but they're not that often. And whenever those things happen, they, you know, they do revert back. So my, my general sense is that if I'm investing for something in the future, um, especially if I if it's if it's deferrable, I'll just defer it mm. and, and you know wait for the market to do its thing. Um, but if I am looking to spend money from uh, from my investments, then of course I'll be you know I'll basically be turning into cash effectively the money that I need for the next year, um, and then mm. keep the rest right, and and then and effectively again next year. Consider putting some, turning some into cash or something, some schedule, whether it's on a yearly schedule or a quarterly schedule. But you know, take some out on a quarterly schedule if I need to spend it. But if I don't need to spend it, I need to spend it in the future. Then I would basically not do anything. That, but that's just me. Uh, you know, that's I don't know. What would you do? I like that talk. Um, so Stephen, I I absolutely understand your your challenge. I think I was going to say what you said first, Doc. So you've stolen my thunder. But just to amplify that quickly, um, if your purchase is able to be delayed or bought forward, by the way. Then, then I would do that. So, if you want to buy a car at some point between 2023 and 2028, for example, now that's a you know it's a Porsche. So let's assume you don't need it as your daily driver. Let's assume it's a, a luxury purchase. Um, you can probably put that off till you've got the you know or or bring it forward, as I said, um, to the point where you've got the money. So you can afford if the market goes up 20 percent this year, you might say, well, actually, I've got as much money as I need at the end of 2021. I'll buy it now. If it's down in 2024. You might want to wait till 2025 or six and then buy it. And if you can afford to do that, literally literally afford, but also time-wise can afford to, to delay it, then that's absolutely the best solution. You can afford to be invested then. Um, the three to five years is basically for people, we say, if you need the money in that period of time, as in if you need that capital, that specific capital, then you don't want to have it invested because if you need to cash out on the 25th of August, 2024, and on that date, the market falls 30% and you have to cash it out regardless, um, that's a it's a it's a tough thing to, to go through, and there've been long periods of time where the market does underperform. And Doc's example of an average is, is right, but equally remember that there have been you know multiple years in a row where things have gone badly, and so um, you know if you need that absolute cash, you don't want to find yourself short if it's if it's going to hurt you financially or, or lifestyle wise. Um, in terms of you know the the what to sell and how to sell, um, I. I would probably be a little more conservative than Doc. I think, you know, you could leave it, let it run and take the averages. And again, if you if you have the flexibility on timing, you can afford to. If you don't have the flexibility on timing, then I think for me, conservatism or safety comes first. Um, so I would absolutely at that point say, you know what, t- you know, take the money out. Yeah, you might, lo- you might lose a 15% return for a given year. But knowing that I've got the X, let's call it 100 grand just for the fun of it. Now I've got the 100 grand in the back pocket. I know it's there. I can use it on the date I need it. Um, that's got a lot of psychic benefits and kind of, you know, uh, sleep at night benefits. And I, I think, again, if you can't delay the purchase, I'd probably be a little more conservative, pull out a bit earlier and just forego the return, knowing that that's just the life, that's life and, you know, that that's the deal. Now, by the way, if you're hearing this and like Doc, you're saying, well, I don't want to do that. I'm happy to let it ride. Then that's exactly your answer. Right? You've got your answer, which is you're prepared to say, I'll, I'll delay my purchase or, or make it make it work. But if I had a, a tax bill to pay in a year and a half's time and I knew it was 100 grand, the chance that it might be 70 grand in the account by then would be not worth thinking about, right? Because you're going to have to pay interest on that or whatever it is. Um, now, if you've got a 100 grand tax bill, you're doing pretty well, by the way. But you know what I'm saying. In that case, you've got a date, you've got an amount, and there's some circ- some negative consequence if you don't make the deal. In terms of what to sell then on that basis, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try and sell based on presumed volatility because that can change remarkably. Um, I've seen companies that do nothing for five years and go either up or down a lot all of a sudden. Um, so again, trying to time or predict is, is tough. I would absolutely go with lowest conviction ideas first, mate. Um, not because they're less volatile, just because frankly, if you've got lower conviction anyway, uh, they're the ones you, you're going to feel less pain having not invested in the market because they're the ones that otherwise you know may may not work out as well if that's your level of conviction so that'd be, that'd be my answer doc any any sort of follow-up thoughts on that i think you gave a brilliant answer much better than mine and oh, it all just different <laughs> so the, and, and and that's what i have to say <laughs> Beautiful. Fools, we're done for this particular podcast. Before we go, though, we're going to have a mailbag edition on Sunday. I know that's surprising. If you want your question featured, well, so this is a bit of a bit of fiction. I won't feature it this week because we're going to pre-record the podcast in a few minutes. But if you want your question featured on our mailbag next week, please get in touch. And the best time to do it is now so we can put it in the queue. Uh, we've got more questions than we have time, so you want to be in the queue as quickly as you possibly can to do that. You can get us on email at info at fool.com.au and our wonderful member services, Fools, will make sure 
those questions get to us. If you're on the socials, we hope you are. We want you to talk to us there. Jump on Twitter at Anirban Mahanti is Doc's Twitter handle. I'm at TMF Scott P. Or The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. Those last two are also our Instagram handles. Doc is still not yet on Instagram. I'm going to keep saying it, Doc, and eventually if people get sick of it, they're going to have to talk to you about getting on Instagram, so I don't have to keep saying it. I'm figuring that's my sneaky plan. You can get us on Instagram at TMF Scott P, at The Motley Fool AU, or on Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia, or Scott Phillips Money. So there you go. Email, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm still not on TikTok, Doc. Are you on TikTok? You haven't joined in the last week. We haven't talk, been talking. Talk, tick, tick, That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> So no. If you want a clock, Doc can help you. If you want to be on TikTok, Doc can I help you. Mm-hmm. All right. That's it for this edition of Motley for Money. Please do subscribe. Please do leave us a review. If you wouldn't mind, some stars and some words help people find the podcast and know what to expect. Hopefully more people like you will find our podcast and be hopefully helpfully hopefully helpfully helped. Try saying that three times quickly. Buy the podcast and have a, a bit of a laugh along the way. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness and some marketing straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll see you Sunday with a special mailbag edition and some foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.